morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Gwendolyn Womack, author of the recently published novel, The Time Collector. I feel like I've known Gwen for years because I wrote a blurb for her first novel, The Memory Painter. Now Gwen has come to Winston-Salem for a special live recording of Inside the Writer's Studio in front of an audience here at Bookmarks. Gwen, welcome to Winston-Salem. Welcome to Bookmarks and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you, thanks for having me. Let's start out talking for, about your hero just for a minute. Rowan West, the hero of the Time Collector, is a psychometrist. Yeah. I'm guessing that there are some members of our audience who don't know what that means. <laughs> I did not know what that meant. Um, it, first of all, tell us what that means. And secondly, is, is, that, a, is that a real word? Is, or just, is that something you made up? Where did that come from? So a psychometrist is somebody who can touch objects and see or hear or sense the memory that the object is holding on to. And it is a very close cousin to a psych it's a psychic ability. And it's not something I made up. Psychometry is its own track within the, you know, the psi phenomenon. And when I was researching the book, um, I was actually looking at a lot of psychics who work with their hands um, to, you know, like say someone uh, someone consults with the police, they need objects that are really, cl were close to a person, jewelry, uh, wallet, keys, so they can grab the, you know, imprint that the object's holding. That's kind of what psychometry is, but, m you know, the novel, The Time Collector, takes it a little bit farther because it goes back in time and history and stuff. <laughs> so, as you may know, I'm a, I'm a collector of rare books, mm -hmm. and so I'm fascinated by the history of a particular object. In the case of a book, it might be, you know, that it was signed by the author or that it was owned by a famous person or that it passed down through a family member. The history of ownership or the provenance. What is it about the past of an object that, that fascinates you? Uh, well, you know, my mom collected antiques um, when I was a young girl. I'm from Houston, Texas. We would go all over to antique shops on weekends and you know, she would just, I would, as a child, have to be there for hours. And I remember being very fascinated by the antiques and wondering who owned them and what's the story and what, you know, what did they leave behind? And so, you know, I didn't really think about that when I was starting The Time Collector, but after I finished it, I'm like, well, you know, that really did play, kind of plant some seeds in my mind, this fascination with antiques. And um, so I've always, I've always wanted to know what's the story. And then the idea for this book actually came when I was writing The Memory Painter mm -hmm. uh, with a special scene um, where uh, in, in my first book, there's a moment where this, the character is holding an antique clock and it once belonged to him in another lifetime. And he ha is filled with so much emotion over the memory of this clock. And, and I thought, at the time I was writing it, it's one of my favorite scenes in the book, and I thought, well, what if there's a character who can actually see all those memories? It has nothing to do with reincarnation and it being your clock. It's just the clock, and he can see it. And all of a sudden, Rowan came into my mind, and I knew I had a book to write at that point. So you said your mom was fascinated by antiques. What, what did she think? Because there's a lot of antiques in this book. What did, what did your mom think about it? 
You know, we actually haven't really talked about oh, really? this yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she. We went to New Orleans. The book is set in New Orleans, um, and we did do a big family trip in New Orleans when I was in fourth grade for her to buy antiques. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Again, she was tickled that it was in New Orleans. Yeah. 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 So we've been teasing the audience a little bit with with hints about. Uh, what the time collector is about? Tell, tell us, give us the give us the pitch. Tell us what the book is about. Okay, um, the time collector is about a master psychometrist. He um, has had this ability since he was five years old. He can touch objects and basically see the past, pretty much revisit the past, and it's really shaped his life, who he is. Um, he has this uh, antique uh, antiques uh, firm in New Orleans, but he travels the world finding really rare um, things that uh, no one else could really find but him. And th the actual book is a is a romantic thriller. He gets an SOS from his close friend who is a psychometrist. He's the only psychometrist he knows. He's in London. And his friend is an intuitive archaeologist, which is another branch, which I did not make up, of, of <laughs> psychometry where uh, archaeologists are actually trying to use kind of a psychic sense to to find out what was at this site before. So his friend is doing this. His friend is researching out-of-place artifacts, which are called Uparts, something else I didn't make up, <laughs> even though it's got a really silly name, Uparts. Um, so Uparts are objects that do not belong in the time that they're found, uh, the time frame. Like they're, you know, an archaeologist will find something, it throws it off, like what's this doing here in this site buried in, you know, 50,000-year-old rock. Um, so his friend's research Uparts and something is coming amiss. He needs his help, and Rowan goes to help him uh, unravel the mystery. And in doing so, ends up having to also help a young budding psychometrist, Millicent, who is just coming into her own ability. And so it's kind of an adventure story that is really about just uh, solving the mystery of the Uparts. I tried to. Somebody asked me. They said, "What kind of books does she write?" And I said, "Well." I mean, do you do you use the word fantasy or because to me, you write books that are very much in the real world, but then there'll be sort of one yeah. fantastic element to it, like the the fact that he's a psychometrist. What, I don't I've I don't want you to settled, pin yourself yeah, into a genre. I've kind but. of settled on magical realism. A lot mm -hmm. of people yeah. tell me that, so it's like, yeah, um, I, you know, I I want I you know the wheelhouse is very you know metaphysical fiction, mm -hmm. adventure stories, but it's uh, I try and make it feel as real as possible, even though it's very fantastical. So I just love doing that and weaving it with history. So it's all you know cross genre the whole. Yeah. But there's always there's always a good adventure in there too, though, which I think keeps the keeps the pages turning. Thank you. Uh, you like like me because you're dealing with with objects that have passed through history. Uh, get the opportunity to weave some real life historical mm -hmm. characters into your into your writing. I have Shakespeare shows up in one of my books, and Christopher Marlowe and other people. Uh, you have Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart who shows up in the second chapter of this book, mm -hmm. along with a a lesser-known 18th-century uh, musician, or at least lesser-known to me. Um, how did you approach the task of fictionalizing real people? Uh, I love doing that. Um, I just try and research as much as I can, um, you know, read material, watch documentaries, um, and just, you know, try and... Uh, 
just try and put myself into that. I, lo I love I love writing the historical fiction part of the mm -hmm. stories, um, and and there's something about you know borrowing from a real life. It just I don't know. It just makes it grounds the book so much, and I love doing that. So and it's like that. You know, you like create an actual scene. It's not. It's mm -hmm. you're not just saying here's some facts about these historical people, and I just think that's really fun. I mean, yeah, it is. I, it I, is I, I did that with Shakespeare in, in the Bookman's Tale, and the fun thing about Shakespeare is that. We know a little bit about Mozart's personality, for mm -hmm. instance. We don't know anything about Shakespeare's personality. He might have been a nice guy. He might have been a real schmuck, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's it, it it gives you this sort of leeway. Um, the other musician that you write about, the one that I had not heard of before, is and I apologize, child, apologize if I pronounce the name wrong. Regina Strinasachi, mm -hmm. is that right? Mm -hmm. And so I immediately Googled her to see whether she mm -hmm. was real or not, mm -hmm. because I know that you have things in your book that are real and things that aren't. And then I thought about the fact that I had done that. And I wondered, how do you think that immediate availability of information changes the way that we as readers interact with a text? I love that. And I, I get all the time readers like, I Googled that, I looked it up. And you know, when I'm writing it, I'm doing the same thing. And I'm thinking, I love having this immediate immediacy as a writer, too, to even get that information. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's the same for the reader. So it's like you can immediately just take a break for a second, get on the Internet and find out what you want, and then go right back into the story. And, you know, I, I just think it's a lot of fun uh, for readers and writers. Both. And, and when you're writing a scene like that, are you, like, in the back of your head going, oh, this is the place where they're going to stop and Google something? <laughs> no. <laughs> because I mean, I just, I just, it just fascinates me that I'm, I'm fascinated by the relationships that are created with reading, mm -hmm. and and this availability of information yeah. sort of creates another layer of relationship. So it's you and the reader and the physical book, and right. this well of information exactly. that they can, they can dip into at any time. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just want to try and get it right. I just, I cringe if I make a mistake and, you know, because you can fact check and, you know, when it, whenever my books go into copy editing, I, I'm like, what mistake will I make? And, you know, obviously that's their job is to really fact check and, and you know, I'll misspell something or get something a little wrong and, you know, thank goodness we have yeah. someone to really yeah. help us out there. But, you know, you try, I try as much as I can just to leave the trail because I'm like, gosh, I know I'm going to have to go back and give my copy editor this piece of information. Of course, I have so many, you know, tabs and spreadsheets and all that. It's just, it can get a well, little. I know a lot of us, I can't remember, is there, is there an author's note in The Time Collector? Or, yeah. I, yeah. So, so I'm a big fan of the author's note, which those of us who write historical fiction use as a way of telling the reader this part was real and this part was made up. Although a lot of readers don't look at the author's note because I've had people write to me and say, "I can't. Why can't I find this guy on Wikipedia?" I'm like, "Because I made him up." You know? um, have you had? Have you had any sort of interaction with readers that you know? Because that author's note is a thing that we we address directly to the reader. Right. And so they sort of, sometimes they feel like they can respond to that personally. I do get a lot of questions, though, about sources and stuff. And so what I do is I actually have a bibliography on my website for each book, and I link to, you know, you can go to Goodreads, you can go to IMDb, you can go to, um, you know, wherever to see it. So if someone really wants to look at the research, I really do try and make a point to make a list as I'm going, and they can. I just kind of send them there. I'm like, you can go look at the website and find it. So, so Rowan, the main character, is the 
would be the perfect host for Antiques Roadshow, right? Yeah. Because, it, it, I mean, it's amazing. So he'll do things like he'll pick up a watch and he'll go, oh yeah, this watch belonged to Louis XIV uh, and it's right. priced at $6, so I think I'll buy it. You know. Um, but So how did you decide about the particular, because you write about some very specific antique right. artifacts. How did you decide about these, these particular artifacts that, that you were going to use and, and how did you pick artifacts that you thought would specifically engage the imagination of the readers? It really just comes as I'm in the story. I don't I don't pre-plan too much on the on the artifacts as I was writing. Like I knew I wanted a pocket watch, but I, I really sat down, uh, I actually sat down with my girlfriend in Houston one night over martinis talking about what was the pocket watch. And she's a big traveler. And she she had she and she actually had these huge old used books of antiques that she was like, here, just take these with you when you go back. And so I'm on the plane carrying these huge books. But that night we went through uh, watchmakers and she was like, you know, it's got to be this one. And I, and I was like, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, it does. <laughs> you know, so that was fun. But I, um, you know, I, I, I'll just land on an antique um, that I just feel is, you know, needs to be in the story. And yeah. then I'll research it and so it's a lot, kind of a feel-in-the-dark, intuitive yeah. thing. I mean, I find a lot of times when I'm doing that kind of research that what I end up finding out is actually way better than what I thought mm -hmm. I was looking for. Yeah, you know, exactly. you'll find these things, you'll go, yeah. oh my gosh, that was, that, that yeah. you know. And, and, it, and it will give you an idea of where maybe your, your narrative can go based on this unexpected detail that you find out I in love your research. That. Yeah, yeah. It's, the research just always opens up the story and you find things that you weren't expecting and it makes it... Just, a, yeah, a great find. So the topic of research brings up something else that people ask me about a lot, especially with regard to the bookbinding scene in The Bookman's Tale. Everybody reads that scene, and they think that I'm a bookbinder because <laughs> I write about binding a book in, in great detail. Um, I'm not a bookbinder. I just know how to read a book about bookbinding. Right, right. Um, but I thought about this in your rock climbing scene uh -huh. because you have this, you got, you have this, to me, I'm not a rock climber, but very realistic detail Thank about you. what it must feel like to be um, a really good rock climber. Um, uh, maybe you are a rock climber, no. but, if, but if not, <laughs> can, can you tell us about how that, yeah. that came about? I Well, I knew Rowan was going to be a rock climber, and not only a rock climber, but a boulderer who he... He climbs uh, without gear, and he climbs with his bare hands. And it's the Rowan is this guy who goes around wearing gloves to protect his hands, and he only takes them off when he wants to touch something. And the, then the only other time he takes off his gloves is when he's rock climbing, and that's his release, his physical release, and he can just like let his hands get on the rocks and it just, it, it helps calm him down. So yeah, I had, I knew nothing about rock climbing and I was watching all of these. I, I bought like the how to rock climb DVDs. I was, <laughs> I was on YouTube and then I was listening to rock climbers playlists and I was blasting their playlists and, you know, trying to get the verbs, you know, that they were, I was just like listening to them talk and how they're talking about the climb and, you know, talking to each other. And it was great. It was fun. It was really a lot. You know, I had this whole rock climbing uh, training, yeah, you know, yeah. just word-wise. So we, thank you for that. We had, a, we had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago who said that if, if anybody ever 
you know, investigated any writer's, novelist's Google search history, <laughs> they would really start to wonder about what kind of people we are yeah, because it's exactly. just the random things that we, that we end up looking at. Um, I, sometimes I will come across a quote in a book that just leaps out at me, and there's one at the beginning of the fourth chapter that I'm going to read, and then I'll ask you a question about. But, but this is the quote. Just as a shell was rolled by the waves and held the memory of the ocean, all things in the world recorded the moments that surrounded them. Information was never lost, but remained perfectly preserved, and every moment of the past lay dormant, waiting to be rediscovered. Do you think that in a real sense that that's true, that every moment of the past is waiting to be discovered? And if so, as historical novelists, is it, is it our, part of our job to make that discovery? Um, I would love for that to be the case. You know, I think it's a great wish. Uh, and I do think that there's a lot of, you know, this whole idea, and, it, and actually, you know, yeah, my stuff goes kind of into this kind of psychic metaphysical place, but it also goes into a quantum physics place and the idea of entangled atoms. Once the atoms touch, they never, they're always entangled. Even if you go to the far reaches of the universe, your atoms are always entangled with those atoms. So it's the idea of recorded memories, you know, there's something there to that. And I think that there's a fascinating idea of, you know, you can go come at it from so many different angles, like the holographic universe and, you know, recorded memory. How, how could we access that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, neuroscientists and physicists are really actually doing deep dives into this whole idea of memory. And um, so... I don't, you know, who knows, but it was, it's great. It's a great fountain of possibility. So, um, I don't know if I'm kind of wandering off. Well, on no, I, I just love this idea that, that that's something that art can do. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're like, maybe science breaks down or science isn't there yet, that, that a novel can do that. A it's novel, a, a novel yeah. can, can read, what is it? What is this phrase again? Can re rediscover moments of the past that mm -hmm. lay dormant. Mm -hmm. Um, whether those, what are those moments are in a in a literal sense mm -hmm. real history or or whether they are history that, that you and I have invented. Right. We're we're nonetheless trying to get at something that I think is is real with a capital R. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. 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 So part of this again to go back about history, part of part of this book is about our relationship with history. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your relationship with history. Uh I you know I'm just fascinated with history. I love history. I love reading um, about histories around the world. Um, it's just, there's just something that it just kind of opens you up. And uh, I just have a passion for it, which yeah. is probably why, you know, I try and time travel in so many of my, <laughs> my books. <laughs> do you travel, do you physically travel a lot? Uh, you know, not so much. Uh, I have a you know young child, and I'm you know pretty much a homebound writer, hermit. Uh, but yeah, so you I live, live in Los Angeles. I mean, there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of history in Los Angeles. We just we just had a great author on the show uh, earlier this month named Sean Levy, who has written a book about the history of Chateau Marmont mm -hmm. in. Uh, uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you if, if you want to sh see that you really live in the middle of right, a bunch right. of history, you should d definitely check out his book. Um, so Rowan is, is, I would describe him as a loner. I, yes. th I think that's pretty fair to say. I think the, the gloves are a great sort of metaphor for the way that he holds other people at a distance. Mm -hmm. um, and he connects to other people mostly through objects. Mm -hmm. um, 
do you think in a sense that comments on a society where more and more, rather than connecting directly to, to people face to face, we're connecting through these objects in our pockets or on our desktops? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely that human connection. Um, it, I mean, that's thematically a big part of what the Time Collector is about, is not only the search for you know, an understanding of time, uh, but also a, a human connection. And I do think that, yeah, Rowan's problem is, you could say, yeah, it's all of, uh, we all share it mm -hmm. with, you know, having that, having a little bit more distance, uh, you know, just with technology, making it easier to interface with people from afar as opposed to face-to-face. -to -face. Yeah, yeah. So. There's another quote that I really liked. He said, he could only witness the past as an observer. It didn't always mean he understood the why of things. Mm -hmm. That was the limitation of his gift. Is that the limitation of every historian? That, that all we really have is, you know, the the facts, as it were, right. uh, but no understanding of why people did what they did. Right, yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, is that the limitation of every parent dealing with a 10-year-old <laughs> child? <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> we both have 10-year-olds in our lives. Mine, mine is a nephew, hers is a child. Uh, you know, she has to deal with hers every day. But, um, so you write about your, your research in your acknowledgments and um, and, and we've talked about some of the specific things that you researched, but this is this is nonetheless a work of imagination. Mm -hmm. But these, some of these, are some of these psychic phenomena that you that you write about. I mean, you said that these are real words and real ideas, but are there actually have you have you encountered actual psychometrists or accounts of people who who claim to actually be able to do these these sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've researched and read about psychometrists, um, and I do talk about this in the book. Like, generally, a psychometrist will use, you know, they'll get a, a, a an image, or it'll come a sound, or a taste, or a smell. It'll come through one or two sensory channels mm -hmm. of kind of the impression or imprint that they'll get. I call it an imprint. Um, and uh, the, actually, there's the name of it is, is on my the bibliography. There's a DVD for psychometrist training. And the woman who did it, she she is a psychic who works for police, and she was trying to get, uh, you know, having everyone um, hold a rock and, you know, tell where it, where it was from, all of that stuff. So she was doing that kind of training. Um, for Rowan, I gave him... I, He's like he's like super psychometrist, you know. He's yeah. he's far far and above, you know. Yeah. Uh, what a, 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 your your normal psychometrist? Not that there's a ton of them. <laughs> so. I mean, I, I love the the I, when you start thinking about the implications of, mm -hmm. of what he can do, and also what he what he's unable to avoid doing. Mm -hmm. He has to wear the gloves because otherwise he would be constantly bombarded right. by these things. Now, this is a, this especially hit me because I read your uh, novel about just a few weeks after reading the first draft of the novel that my younger child wrote that actually is about somebody who touches objects and feels the emotions of the people who have touched them in the past. But they had the same thing with they had to have these special gloves because otherwise they would be overcome by uh -huh. emotion every time they touched anything. Mm -hmm. um, but but Roan does this this uh, thing that sort of takes it in a different direction. He reads a particular object that belongs to another character in the book, mm -hmm. and that that character 
sees that reading as a as a violation of private privacy and mm -hmm. an invasion of, of an intimate space. Can you talk a little bit about the morality of psychometry in the context of the novel? Yeah, I do kind of touch on there's lots of things you can that become question marks when someone can, you know, pick up your purse and get where you know your day and you know uh so that i do land on that with uh rowan he is drawn you know the it's a, it's a love story too he's drawn to this woman who is a, psycho a budding psychometrist and he ends up touching something of hers and getting some really intimate memories and he doesn't touch anything else but you know she realizes what he's done and, and she feels very infringed on. Um, so there's boundaries and then she ends up doing it to one of his mother's portraits and she gets some intimate memories of the mother and then she, she's like, have you touched this? And he's like, I don't touch my parents' things. It would be infringing. You know, so it's like there, there are boundaries because, you know, there, what do you do? It's like you, you're, you could kind of be a peeping Tom about it if you... You just went around trying to read everything. And then, to me, like, the next logical question after that is, um, when does a private life that's nobody's business becomes, become fair game for the historian? Is it, is it when that person becomes famous? Is it when that person is no longer alive? Is it a century later? What, you know, when is it okay to read, the, read those intimate things, whether it's a diary or the ability to read an object with your hands? Uh, that's a great question. I would say, you know, if the person is alive and right there with you, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but historically, may, there's, I don't know, there seems to be a little bit more wiggle room, you know, with wanting to see the past, uh, uh, but that, it's a gray zone, it really is. I mean, I just think we have, in, in our society now, we have sometimes this obsession about wanting to know all these intimate details about people right. that, that really aren't our business. Mm -hmm. And yet, there are intimate details about people who are not with us anymore that we really need to know so that we don't go down dark paths that we have gone down in the past. Exactly, you know? yeah. And so to understand like where, where those lines are, and I think, it's, I think this, that, that event in your novel, I think kind of opens up that box and, right. and explores it in some sort of, some sort of interesting way. Mm -hmm. um, the Time Collector and the Memory Painter both explore the power of memory, though they do it in different ways. Is there, is there something particular about memory that, that fascinates you? Why do you? Why do you return to that idea? Uh, yeah, I just, there's something so poignant about memories that, you know, the past, you, it's with you, but you can't touch it, and you can't ever go back to it. And I started that exploration with The Memory Painter, which is about a painter who can remember his past lives quite vividly, and he paints them, and and that's the the, the story really revolves around him um, and the mystery of how he got that way. But and you know, and then the the time collector spun off from when you know when I was writing that about that scene with the clock. So it's like there's just this feeling of lost. It's it's a beautiful. It's a it's like this exquisite, beautiful, sad wonderful thing and how can you capture that in words you know yeah, and it's yeah. it's even like looking back on your life in these treasured moments and memories with friends and family that you'll never have again it's fleeting but yet it's with you always and there's just that you know 
that is what I, that was what keeps coming, you know, keeps bringing me back to these ideas about memory that I just want to kind of break them apart and look at it through different ways and, you know, through reincarnation or psychometry or, um, you know, the, for, the fortune teller does it too with a, with a manuscript. Okay. And uh, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's just kind of what gets me excited. I think I like the way that this book connects the idea of memory with the idea of objects because for so many of us, our memories are really, you know, tied up in objects, whether those be photographs often or, yeah. you know, just thing, things that we associate with a, with a family member who's not with us anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as a book collector, I kind of have, have that, that same um, thought. I think, I think a lot of people who come and see my house full of books <laughs> will get into this conversation about collecting, and they say, oh, there's sort of two kinds of people. There's people who collect things and people who don't collect things. And to me, it's like collecting things, in my experience, has a lot to do with enforcing memories. Do you, do you collect things? Uh, I don't collect so much. I, I collect kaleidoscopes and pens, and mm-hmm. those are the two things I collect. Um, but I'm really like I, I when I was 17, I gave away all my possessions to go like camping around, <laughs> and I was really about like not having anything and just to see what that felt like. So I resisted collecting for a really long time, and then I really fell in love with kaleidoscopes. I'm like oh, I'm going to start collecting these and uh, and then pens because I'm a writer. But and and so wherever I go somewhere, I get a pen. But. Um, so she's going to get this really cool. I know, cool, I'm excited. It's really cool pen. inside the writer studio I pen she's going to get today. So I'm so excited about this. Um, but. Uh, what was the? What was the well, we were, I mean, I was asking if you were a collector, just because um, so many collectors that I know, their their collection is intimately connected to the idea of memory, yeah. whether it's their own memories or other people's memories. Right. You know? Yeah. So now, in that way, uh, not so much. Uh, but I do uh, in the time collector. I do really. Uh, explore the the power of our, of heirlooms, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that is important, uh, and to me too. You know, heirloom from uh, you know from either side of my family, it, it has just so much meaning for me. Um, so you know, the, the idea of heirlooms keep the stories alive. They don't, you know, even if you're not a psychometrist, the stories are there, and you can feel them in your heart when you have this heirloom. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, definitely. And that that brings me to I, I noticed that a number of the the objects that get read in this book. Mm-hmm. There's a music box, there's a fan, mm-hmm. there's a snow globe, there's a watch, there's a coin, there's a lantern. All of these are, the thing that they have in common is they're all handcrafted items. Oh, interesting. Um, well, I was going to ask you if there was a particular reason <laughs> that you that you wanted to present handcrafted items, but maybe you didn't notice that. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, no. <laughs> this is what we do as writers. I mean, I have, I have, to, I have to say that very often... We create patterns that we don't realize we're creating, mm-hmm. and it takes a reader to point those yeah. patterns out to us. And then we feel like, wow, I wish I had done that on purpose because then I would <laughs> feel like I'm a smart person. But um, I, I've, I've had that experience a lot where readers go, I love what you did here. I was like, oh, yeah, I never noticed that. <laughs> um, let's go back to New Orleans. Okay. Um, you, so you said you set the novel in New Orleans because your mom had gone on an, on an antique no, it was just I immediately when I came, you know, w- the idea of Rowan really entered my mind, and I just knew right away he needed to be in New Orleans. Uh, I had been to New Orleans as a child for the antique hunting, and then I had gone back for a wedding um, not that long ago. It was really a wonderful, um, a wonderful trip, and 
it just the city, you know, I had done Boston for the memory painter. I was thinking of historical cities that just a psychometrist would just really have everything around them they needed. And just New Orleans, it was there was just no question it needed to be there. And um, my friends who had gotten married there had moved there, and they were like, "Well, come and you know research and." take you all around so I spent like four days with them and mm. just went into every antique store and every you know every nook and corner of the city and it just uh, and I had written like the first chapters of the book before uh, Rowan is out traveling and he's literally about to fly into New Orleans I'm like I gotta get over there I can't <laughs> I literally can't write it until I get there and then I got there I, I did the trip and then I I started he landed the next day as soon as I was back in LA I was I was off and running it was great I mean it really did feel to me like that couldn't have been any other city mm-hmm. um, and I don't know about you I, I feel a really strong connection between place and story. And like mm-hmm. you, I like to go, mm-hmm. like when I was writing about Jane Austen, I wanted to go to Steventon, even though there was very little to see there, just to feel the landscape yeah. and to walk down the lane. And, you know, we were there for 45 minutes because mm-hmm. it's a tiny little village. But 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 did you, do you feel that same kind of connection? Oh, yeah. Definitely know? going to a place and, you know, just getting those sensory impressions firsthand is really great. And and you know, I would just I would just go into places and get the the circulars and the flyers and you know, you're just trying to get as much of the you know, around you, you know, just hoard as much, you know, of the city as possible yeah. to take with you. So yeah. it's amazing too how you talk about picking up the circulars and the flyers, mm-hmm. how sometimes the, it's the littlest thing yeah. that gives you the detail that really makes it feel like exactly. this book was written by somebody who lived in New Orleans yeah. their whole lives. Yeah, you know? yeah. Cause it's, it's not, it's not knowing where Jackson square is. It's, mm-hmm. it's that those tiny little details. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, there's a, there's a memory in there with, uh, the, um, with uh, Mardi Gras and I called my girlfriend. Um, I was further along in the book and I'm like, okay, talk to me, tell me all about Mardi Gras. Cause she'd done it every year growing up. She was just telling me, I was furiously writing, just grabbing words. And, you know, she were to read that. I mean, I think she, she has, read it but you know it's just like that there's so much of her story in there you know so it was uh, uh definitely that's you know it was someone who grew up in new orleans that's what they did you know yeah. So. Yeah. so i'm gonna i'm gonna give you another quote and okay. i'm just gonna ask you to unpack this one for okay. us okay history was doomed to repeat itself until humanity acknowledged the deep connection between every living being mm-hmm. do you, first of all is that you talking um, and and if so, how, can you explain that to us a little bit? Uh, yeah, I just you know the connections between us, um, bridging cultures, bridging religions. You know, we live in this vast world, and we're getting more and more connected every day. Uh, and it's even with our food, with our our lifestyles, and you know uh, our our art, our you know everything, mm-hmm. travel, um, and. I just think that there's just, you know, the path to trying to get more peace and harmony in our lives uh, is just with trying to celebrate the celebrate the sameness of all of us as opposed to differences. Because yeah. you know? I feel like that both in the memory painter and this, in, in a way, that that's what their novels are really about at their heart is about human connection mm-hmm. yeah. and the struggle for human connection. I mean, yeah. with Roan, it's, it's very obvious yeah. the things that are... They're keeping him from making human connections, but it, but right. I just feel like there's a there's a larger idea there. Right. 
Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. If you've listened to the show before, you've, you've heard them. You may even have your own answers. Um, Gwen, you should be able to answer <laughs> most of these in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all uh, something to think about. And if so, if you're ready, okay. we'll begin the speed round. Here we go. What word do you love to work into your writing? Incandescent. Ooh. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I do not have one. I really don't. Oh, you and Ian McEwen, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, where's your favorite place to write? Uh, in my uh, bedroom at my desktop. Where could you never write? Uh, in a cafe, a coffee house. Do you know that like about... 75% of writers, that's their answer. We have the, There's this cliche that we all write in coffee shops, and uh, you know, I haven't interviewed J.K. Rowling yet, but none of the rest of us write in coffee shops. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Split infinitives. What was the first book you remember reading? Uh, Helen Keller's The Story of My Life. Mm. What are you reading now? I am reading um, The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Neill. Uh, and also his other one, uh, The Dueling Neurosurgeons. Mm. So. What book would you like to have written? Uh, Circe by Madeline Miller. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Uh, probably a cookbook. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Uh, just that my book was just the break they needed. Mm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Gwendolyn Womack, whose novel, The Time Collector, is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can buy signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Gwen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank all of you. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Coming up this summer, I'll be interviewing some of the authors who will be appearing at Bookmarks' 15th Annual Festival of Books and Authors on September 7th. And don't forget to join Bookmarks and Inside the Writer's Studio for a special event with international best-selling mystery writer Louise Penny on June 27th. More information is available at www.bookmarksnc.org. I hope we'll see you all there. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.